and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Semi-Pro. Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host and friend Julio. Julio, we're taking a voyage back to the year of 1976 today for a sport that I don't know. Do they have basketball in Peru? I mean, yes. <laughs> it's, uh, we even I never call know, it man. Sometimes basketball. I'll ask you questions about what they have in Peru and what they don't, and you'll surprise me. <laughs> Yeah, no, like I, I surprised myself. Team. I surprised myself because I had to stop and think. And then I was like, no, yeah, of course we do. I played basketball when I was a kid. Uh, baseball is the one that's like more of a gray area. We don't have like professional baseball games out there. But basketball, I'm pretty sure we do. And we definitely have like basketball classes for for the youth. So I, I spent a couple of summers attempting to play basketball. <laughs> This movie took me back to my childhood. I mean, I know the internet tells me they have it, but sometimes I'll bring up something and you'll just, your silence will be deafening. Be like, yep, didn't have that growing up. So <laughs> it was, was a Afro long time win. ago. That's, that was probably like my, my hard drive had to search really far back to bring up the memories of uh, just what it's like, uh, you know, to dribble in Peru. <laughs> Were Afros in? Was that something that came through no. Peru during your time there? No, no, that's that was long gone. If there ever were Peruvian Afros, they they were not in vogue by the time that I I came into the world. They were abolished by the time you roamed free. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, in an effort to, I guess, just kind of build a bridge and get us from point A to point B, we're doing a quick turnaround here of um, a couple sports episodes, uh, focusing firstly on the world of basketball, and then. Uh, on the next episode, we'll be zoning in on the world of baseball, uh, an aforementioned gray area for Julio there. But kicking off today, we are visiting the 2008 American sports comedy semi-pro starring Will Ferrell, Woody Harrelson, and Andre 3000, uh, currently standing at 22% on Rotten Tomatoes, directed by Kent Alterman. Julio, was this your first time watching this, or had you seen this movie previously? I've seen this movie before. I want to say I screened it. It's, hey, I did too. Yeah, it seems like a movie I would screen because it, it seemed pretty low stakes. I was like, well, why not get paid <laughs> while watching it? <laughs> it's one of those everything yeah. all, as, everything's turned off in the theater and then it's one thirty. You just fire it up. You think, why not? Yeah. If you fall asleep, what's the worst that can happen? Exactly. It's just if if I end up enjoying it a lot, then I'll just come back and watch it with everybody else. But if not, then I made a couple bucks. No harm done. With Semi-Pro, 
we're discussing director Ken Alterman's only film. This is the only movie he's directed. He's been active in the the film industry, but this is the only he's worked more as a producer. Uh, this is his only directorial effort. So, we'll where do you go kind. after Semi Pro? We'll try to speak kindly of you, Kent. His uh, IMDb page is awesome. Known for Semi Pro director, a history of violence producer. <laughs> <laughs> he got it out of his system. And then it's like, all right, I got nothing to prove to you fuckers. If this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, thank you so much for joining us. If you're a returning listener, give us a moment here while we explain what it is we do to any and all potential new listeners, being Will Ferrell and basketball, who knows? Also, we may be pulling in the Maura Tierney uh, demographic. So here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as Certified Fresh. And make a case for potentially why that ranking uh, isn't telling the whole story. Be it questionable acting, bad direction, uh, I guess less than interesting plots. Things the critics may have just swept under the rugs in favor of giving it a positive review. Uh, conversely, we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is uh, rotten, usually about 30% and below, one of those nasty green splotches, and make a case for that film's positive merit. All in an attempt to say, hey, you can be as over the moon about anything as you want to be. Uh, you can be as cynical as anything as you want to be. Or like I said just a second ago, the, the whole story isn't always told with the Rotten Tomatoes score. Uh, but that comprises the first half of this podcast known as Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movie we're discussing, they just have to hang around to the second half. That's correct. Uh, the second half of the show, aptly titled Real Talk, that's the that second episode of The Contrarians that you see on your feed now, the one that has RT next to it. And that's where we just stop playing with the tomato meter gimmick and we just tell you exactly how we feel. Uh, semi-pro. I mean, Alex and I just shared that we've watched it before in very special circumstances, just alone in a movie theater by ourselves, each mm-hmm. of us. Uh, but did we like it? Did we did we go back the next day to watch it with the general audience? Uh, that is to be uh, discovered in real talk uh, by you, the audience, and by uh, I'm not gonna lie. I know exactly how Alex feels about this movie, especially also you, you listeners. If you listened to our Pan's Labyrinth episode, Alex actually said how he feels about Semi Pro at the end of that one. So yeah. I was about to say, anyone that's ever discussed this movie with me or Will Ferrell movies in general knows how I feel about it, but. I do not know how you feel about it, Julio, so I, I look forward to it. You'll find out in real talk, along with everybody else. You'll wait just like the rest of us. All right, 22% on Rotten Tomatoes. This, I remember, critically and financially, was not the success that it should have been. The reasons for that, we will discuss in the second half. <laughs> But for now, 22% means that the critics on Rotten Tomatoes did not care for it. And it looks like it was comprised of 161 reviews. So definitely a consensus there with an audience score of 38%. Fascinating. Julio, uh, from the ones you polled, what was the deal? Why did they like this movie? They may have not liked the movie, Alex, but they really loved how it gave them an opportunity to use basketball puns on their reviews. Beautiful. Here's a, here's a sample of rotten quotes from uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Kyle Smith from the New York Post says, Semi-Pro goes up for the dunk and misses the hoop, the backboard and the point. Instead, it manages to both strike out and get sacked. 
Whose idea was it to remake Slapshot a la Jerry Lewis? What's Slapshot? I mean, I, I know it's a movie, but I, I've never even heard of it. Wasn't that the Paul Newman comedy? Is it? I don't know. But it gets referenced a lot uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, Paul Newman, uh, 1977. It's a hockey movie. Can you, can you see Paul Newman playing Jackie Moon? Uh, I mean, in 2008, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, in his prime. I mean, maybe. That's the thing about this movie. It's It can be anybody. That's the brilliance of Jackie Moon. It's like Spider-Man. He can be anybody. Uh, but yeah, I can't tell if that guy was trying to be too cute or if he really thought that strikeout and sack apply to basketball. I hope he not. ran out of basketball puns. Yeah, he's like, no one will notice. Yeah. Sports. They're all the same. Uh, Carla Meyer from Sacramento Bee says the Will Ferrell man-boy persona, a combination of obstinacy, idiocy, and innocence that Ferrell has ushered through several successful comedies, finally gets called for traveling in semi-pro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. She got there. She got there. Took a moment, but she got there. <laughs> Took the scenic route, but got there. Um Robert W. Butler from Kansas City Star says, Semi-Pro is all fancy dribbling and passing with nobody actually scoring. And then this last one is like, fuck basketball. I want to say something about the movie. Derek Malcolm from the London Evening Standard says, Farrell mugs his way through with enthusiasm, but Harrelson looks a bit dumbstruck by it all. Did you think Woody Harrelson looked dumbstruck? No, like, Woody Harrelson's fantastic in this. He looks very much into it. Yeah, he took the movie way more seriously than it deserved. He got, like, jacked and shit for it. He gets, like, three Oscar clips. Yes, he does. Uh, you are dumbstruck, sir, not Woody yes. Harrelson. <laughs> all right. All of those were painful for me to listen to. Just going over Will Ferrell's uh, filmography here and his credits, this would have been... His previous outing was Blades of Glory, which was also a... Uh, I guess you could consider that a sports movie, which made bank at the box office. And had a better critical reception of 70%. I guess it's the John Heater uh, dynamic there. But I always forget, man. Um, man, Will Ferrell was... He started on SNL in 1995. It's crazy. So he was what? Was Anchorman before uh, Elf? What was his big movie? I, I remember the first time I saw him was SNL, obviously. And then he was in uh, Austin Powers. Uh, so his big... That Will Ferrell vehicle, Austin Powers. Old school. Old school would have been the first big thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah, was, yeah. Uh, I mean, if you want to count Zoolander, that, that kind of did a lot for him. Uh, it was 2001. Old school and Elf were both in 2003. So that, that was his year. And then the next year, Anchorman, 2005 comes along. Wedding Crashers, The Producers, Bewitched, Kicking and Screaming, 2006. He had Talladega Nights and... Uh, Stranger Than Fiction, and of course, Blades of Glory, leading into semi-pro. So, already established as, would you consider him like a Hollywood powerhouse in, in the realm of like Adam Sandler or something? It, it seemed like for a minute there, you put his name on the marquee, people were going to come out and watch. <laughs> Until semi-pro happened. <laughs> well, and see, there you're wrong too, because later that year, Step Brothers came out, and that movie made $130 million. So it's not Will Ferrell, it's basketball. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> I mean, it could be. Who knows? Clearly, he's still... He can do whatever he wants these days. It feels like he's not as prominent as he was back in 
those years of Talladega Nights and you know his his Adam McKay years. I think that mm-hmm. those were peak Will Ferrell. And now he just I don't know. I mean, when was the last Will Ferrell movie that you watched? Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think. The I remember reading about that um, Holmes and Watson movie that was so bad they tried to sell it to Netflix, and Netflix was like, "Nope, <laughs> you, you made your bed, now you sleep in it." <laughs> I think the last Will Ferrell movie I watched was Get Hard. That might be the same for me. Uh, I do not recall that movie being particularly good. I'm sure he plays basketball with uh, Kevin Hart at some point in that movie. <laughs> so there's a tie-in. Oh, you know, last year I watched his uh, Netflix movie, Eurovision, that he did with uh, Rachel oh, McAdams. Oh, Rachel McAdams? Yeah. Mm. So I actually, I guess, I watched something very recent by him. He still got it. Still, <laughs> he's not any less Will Ferrell than he was 20 years ago. Uh, Julio, the release date of this in February of 2008 is not ideal. You know, the January, February release dates, uh, it looks like a lot of... Um, the box office at that point in time was being dominated by the Academy Award nominated movies. I'm mm-hmm. seeing there will be Blood, No Country for Old Men, Juno, uh, ahead of where Semi Pro came in the box office that weekend. And then it looks like there was a bunch of big, loud movies too. I'm seeing Cloverfield, uh, Jumper. Was that Anakin Skywalker? Yeah, Anakin Skywalker and uh, Billy Elliot. I'm also seeing the bucket list up there. I remember that movie just made a fucking killing. So point being, uh, it would appear as though Semi-Pro came in at a rough time. Uh, 2008 being the absolute embarrassment of riches that it was in the film industry. It's not surprising that a couple of classics slipped through the cracks here. And uh, <laughs> Semi-Pro being a casualty of uh, not that it was bad. It's just there was so much other good shit going on at that point in time. <laughs> As I mentioned, the release was February 19th of 2008, a budget of $55 million, a disappointing box office return of right around $44 million. Directed by Kent Alterman, screenplay by Scott Armstrong, and again, starring Will Ferrell, Woody Harrelson, Andre 3000, Mara Tierney, Will Arnett, and Dave Koechner gets uh, mentioned in this as well. I guess he has a big enough part. Andy Daly, not so much. Scott Armstrong... Uh, returning to the side of Will Ferrell after having written Old School and Elf. I mean, just based on those numbers, they were a can't-miss team. They were due for a loss. He also did Starchy and Hutch, School for Scoundrels, and The Heartbreak Kid in between those two. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> so now you you're go. painting the, the full picture there. All right, Julio. The year was 1976. Jackie Moon is a singer who used the profits from his one-hit wonder Love Me Sexy to buy a basketball team in the American Basketball Association, the ABA. The Flint Tropics, becoming the owner, head coach, and starting point forward and pregame announcer. At a team's owner's meeting, the ABA commissioner announces a plan to merge the league with the National Basketball Association, NBA. But only four teams will move to the more established league. The Tropics are the worst team in the league and are in danger of dissolving. Jackie, thinking fast, argues that the teams with the best four records should be merged and the commissioner accepts. I almost knew like all the words to love me sexy. And that's not just necessarily like how many times I've seen this movie. It's just it's a fucking earworm. I remember when this movie came out. My friend John's ringtone was that. And... uh 
<laughs> we would just be, you know, in a public place and someone would call and all of us would just start singing along to Love Me Sexy. Will Ferrell crooning a tune to start us off here. That's him, right? That's him singing. Yeah. Yeah. Man can sing. He's got some pipes. Yeah. On top of everything. He's funny. He's good looking. He can sing. The melody to Love Me Sexy came about from Will Ferrell's first table read of the script. Uh, Director Kent Alterman sent uh, leading record producer Nile Rogers a recording of the improv that Ferrell did on that day, and Rogers built up the song around that. So, (laughs) Will Ferrell, uh, much more talented than we give him credit for. Yeah, the opening we see, he's this wacky, carny team owner, uh, you know, in the vein of Al Davis or the Savannah Bananas type thing of... Just trying to do whatever he can to make money. There's the newspaper clippings of, you know, free gerbil night and uh, nickel beer night turns ugly. Uh, Julio, you may be not at all surprised to know that was once a thing in America for minor league teams to get attendance with like nickel or dime beer night. My dad has some stories of some games he went to like that that turned ugly. But the establishing (laughs) (laughs) nickel beer, the 70s, Alex, obviously. That that's an era that's even too far back for me, let alone for you. Hopefully, you're on the same page as I. But I find the '70s to be like probably the funniest decade uh, to see in movies. Do you think that happens because we are we didn't live through it, so we just get to point back at it and just laugh? Like people in a couple decades from now are gonna point back to uh, the 2020s and just laugh about all the silly like pandemics and election <laughs> drama that we had. What like, you're pointing that... out there, uh, won David or Russell, a lot of awards. He was just like, <laughs> see, the seventies are funny to look at. Uh, he made a movie that it basically, it was called the seventies are funny to look at the film, <laughs> but he didn't have Will Ferrell. So he did not have like Will it. Ferrell. Uh, no, I mean, I get where you're going with this is the comedy of seeing Will Ferrell with an Afro and, you know, Andre 3000 with his big fro and like the fur coats and shit they're wearing and the outfits that we see Woody Harrelson in and Maura Tierney's just kind of, I think she just brought her own clothes and was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Uh, <laughs> She's like, I, I'm going for the timeless look. <laughs> I see where you're going with it and that there is the comedy to it just because it's like, man, that's crazy that people used to wear that kind of shit. But also the the movie itself deserves credit for outstanding wardrobe and scene setting. I think it kind of puts you there and it doesn't feel like a put on. Like they really immerse these people in 1976. These uh, characters, the mustaches. as it were. I think the mustaches do do a lot of the heavy lifting, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. I mean, you know, not everybody can sport a, a 70s mustache and not feel out of place, but I think everybody here that has a mustache, most notably, I would say Will Arnett. Like it just yes. they belong Fantastic. there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm glad that Pharrell didn't didn't try it because if Will Ferrell had tried uh, to grow mustaches, that would have been one step too far. Sadly, Julio, there was no best original song nomination for this. Uh, Why? <laughs> Some Disney bullshit took up all the five nominations. You would be surprised to learn that it was actually Jai Ho that ended up winning oh my the God. best original song <laughs> previously covered. <laughs> On the Contrarians, uh, also nominated was Down to Earth from Wally and Osea from Slumdog Millionaire as well. So it was Slumdog taking up more than one slot. Not as egregious as a year prior to this. I remember Enchanted was nominated for like either three or four of the five nominations. 
and didn't win, which makes it even funnier. <laughs> this is the Amy Adams curse. As much fun as we're having with Jackie Moon and the Flint Tropics, it's a failing team. We see the uh, stadium there in Flint, Michigan. There's maybe you know twenty people in the crowd in a, in a venue that seats what looks to you know you could conceivably get five or six thousand people in there. Well, Farrell, like we said, is trying to do what he can. He does like a concert and has all these uh, gimmicks and spectacles surrounding his show, but. They're a dying franchise, and they their one reprieve, their one relief, and the, their last attraction is uh, Coffee Black, who also plays as downtown funky stuff Malone, uh, Andre 3000 in this. Now, he would have been fairly fresh off the heels of Four Brothers. Uh, thoughts on Andre Benjamin as an actor? Um, we we did him wrong as a, as a people. <laughs> we We kind of... I guess we failed to embrace him enough because when was the last time you saw him in a movie? Uh, I don't remember. Semi exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we saw him in uh, we saw him in Be Cool, which we actually covered here on the show during the summer of Travolta, uh, Four Brothers, uh, Semi Pro, and then Outcast. I want to say it was Outcast that did Idlewild. Uh, like they were like the force behind that movie, which was an actual musical. Uh, starring him and uh, yeah, Big Boy is the other guy, right? In Outcast. Yes. Okay. Written and directed by Brian Barber, Terrence Howard, of course, third build there. Uh, I didn't like that movie, but but he like Andrew Benjamin, Andrew three thousand. Like, he has the charisma. He has he he could have been a movie star that endured. Like he could have been up here, like you know, today still like. Starring in blockbusters, could be in the Marvel universe, uh, but no. Somehow it was just like after a few years, we just we didn't do enough to keep his career going in front of the camera, and uh, that is a loss. And that is this is not the only person in Semi Pro that that we failed. Like there's a couple other people uh, that we'll get to later. That uh, I also feel the same way. That somehow, even though they're great, the careers didn't take off, or, or kind of like more the careers peter out way sooner than i would have liked long story short i like him he's he's really funny here this is probably my favorite performance of his we get the team set and then also the um the officials and kind of the 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 crew that runs with them being andy richter who's bobby d who's the general manager of the team uh will arnett and andrew dolly respectfully play uh, lou redwood and dick pepperfield they're the uh color and play-by-play commentators for the team uh, and then also I always call him Father Pat because of this movie. Matt Walsh, who is um, he, he's on uh, Veep. What's his name on that show? Uh, fuck, who is he? I mean, he's a uh, the writer, the speech writer in, in Veep. I would say, or the the guy in charge of uh, communications. Um, God damn it, Mike. Mike. He's Mike. Mike. Yeah. Yes. Got there together. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, he's Father Pat, the ref in this. Yes. Although he is a priest, he is a referee for almost all ABA games. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Do you have? I, I know it's kind of early in the recap to bring it up, but I, it has to be asked. Do you have a, a favorite uh, supporting character in this movie? Andy Richter's pretty funny because it's the thing of you kind of forget he's there from time to time. Woody Harrelson is to me the MVP of this. Would you? Well, no, no, no. Him? Okay. okay, Woody Harrelson is almost like a main character. Like I would say, Andrew Benjamin, uh, Woody Harrelson, and Will Ferrell are like the triangle that's carrying this movie. But I'm talking about like the more like smaller supporting roles, you know, like Will Arnett, Andy Daly. Uh, Andy I mean, Richter. you know, I love Rob Corddry, and I think his uh, character is hilarious. Um, Josh Brayton, who plays Twiggy, he's really mm-hmm. funny in this as well. I think between the trifecta there of uh, Rob Corddry, Matt Walsh, and 
Josh Brayton. I'm... <laughs> Another triangle. I'm going to go with my boy, Will Arnett, just because it was so, so nice to see him, you know, back to form. It's just, uh, it's been a while since I've, since Will Arnett made me laugh this much. The last season of Arrested Development was not good. So <laughs> Jay Phillips as Scootsy is also really funny. He has some of my favorite interactions with Jackie Moon later in the movie where uh, Woody Harrelson fucking slashes the ball so that mm-hmm. it deflates and Will Ferrell just like quietly turns to him and goes, go, go patch that ball up, Scootsy. That's <laughs> one of my favorite parts in the movie. Embarrassment of riches. That's the point when it comes yes. to supporting characters. Uh, fucking Rorschach shows up for a couple of scenes. That's my next note here. We're getting right to it. Dukes, the local pothead who's the number one Flint Tropics fan and I never missed a game. Uh, <laughs> Julio, he was coming into this movie off the heels of being an Academy Award nominated actor. I mean that literally. This it was it wasn't just like he did little children and then had a few passion projects before semi pro. <laughs> he did little children and then he was Dukes. And then the next year he was Rorschach. So there aren't many bigger legends in Contrarian's canon than Jackie Earl Haley. <laughs> that's that's good. that's how you're supposed to use your uh your Academy Awards capital. You know, it's like you get your nomination, and that, then you have this this key moment in your career where you like you you have so many options ahead of you, and then it's like the you know a very important moment to choose your own adventure. And uh, Jackie Haley picked uh, Semi Pro, moved to page sixty nine or whatever, and that led to, to Watchmen. I mean, would he have gotten Watchmen if he hadn't had this little pit stop on Semi Pro? Who knows. Who's to say? Besides Zack Snyder, I guess. But yeah, <laughs> Zack he's Snyder, Dukes. big fan of semi-pro. <laughs> Dukes is a local pothead, like I said, season ticket holder, never misses a game. He gets called on to uh, the court for the halftime show to throw a half-court shot uh, for $10,000. He ends up making it, and then we learn quickly that there is no $10,000. The beer sponsor just sounded good. <laughs> Who the hell has $10,000? <laughs> Jackie Moon <laughs> asks Father Pat, very concerned. So this kind of spawns one of the, the stories that goes through the entire movie of <laughs> Jack Earl Haley trying to get his fucking money. He's so different here, though, than I think in anything else. I've never seen him play uh, a harmless character. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm used to Jack Earl Haley being menacing. So, it, you know, it's been a long time since I've seen this movie. So I was actually expecting him to get violent at some point when he didn't get his money. But he remains a sweetheart the entire time. <laughs> We get to see the dynamic of the team, and that is that the game doesn't really matter. That's kind of the precursor for them getting to party. And so Jackie, his ego is such that he just he believes he is the team, believes he controls it all. They go clubbing afterwards and dancing, and it's always to uh, love me sexy. He, he's the one-hit wonder that can't let it go type thing. He's Tiffany. I think we're alone now. Uh <laughs> The players are hearing the rumors and fearing of a merger and that they're going to be out of a job and you know nowhere to go type thing. Jackie assures them that that's not going to be the case and he'll take care of them, saying, you know, you can just call me Bambi's mother because I take care of my team. And They all look around and think, well, Bambi's mom died. And then Andre 3000 has the great line of, who the fuck is Bambi? <laughs> so that is really clever writing. Because uh, the easy joke is like, hey, Bambi's mom got shot. Like, that's what everybody thinks right away. And that, so when it gets to Andrew 3000, it's just, it's funny that what he says, but also it tells you so much about his character. 
is the one guy that hasn't watched that Disney movie. Masterful characterization in like one line. Who is this guy? Scott Armstrong? That's his name? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to have to watch Sartre and Hutch now. I've been, I've been putting it off and now. I think I, I need to just to honor his work. Jackie attends the merger scene with Dave Keckner, the commissioner, the head of the ABA, and he does announce uh, what we read earlier, that, that four teams are going to be absorbed from the ABA into the NBA, explains why the teams going are going. J- Jackie asks, what do the Celtics have that I don't? A strong fan base, regular attendance, a winning team. <laughs> Jackie proposes that the best four teams should go, and the, the rest of the uh, owners agree that yeah, that's the best way to do it. Make it performance based. Turns into this big blowout with Dave Keckner threatening to fight multiple people there. Uh, they vote and it's established that the, the best four teams will go. Have you ever seen David Cockner play a character that's so, you know, he's played the straight man here, even when he has this little outburst where he's like, I'm going to fight somebody. Like, His outburst not- makes sense too from like a performance perspective because it's mm-hmm. like it's like clearly this thing is a big deal and he obviously had to go through a lot of work to get it to where it is. So the fact that these guys are changing it on the fly, I, I could, yeah, that would make a man blow up. Like if it, your whole presentation has already been, you know, the outcome's been determined already, and then while you're giving it, someone changes it on you. So I, I get why he loses his cool. But to your question, I mean, yeah, he's always. Fucking Todd Packard, champ kind, something mm-hmm. really goofy and over the top. And for this, he's he's fairly reserved. And he even gets a really good uh, moment of acting later in the movie, too. Yes. Um, so it's definitely playing that against was type. <laughs> yeah. I, the more I'm thinking about it, there are some against type roles in this and some performances that go against the grain. Maybe that was it. Word got out that he's not Todd Packard in this. So people just said, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and even though Will Ferrell's like, the 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 face on the poster and the name on the marquee. It's not your typical zany Will Ferrell comedy. Yeah, <laughs> they made Todd Packer not funny. What the fuck? <laughs> Enter Woody Harrelson. He is brought in as Ed Monix, who is a uh, we learn just from the dialogue and the reaction here that he's a a veteran player, an aging point guard, and former NBA champion. Uh, although we learn thanks to. Uh, Coffee Black, downtown funky stuff Malone, that he sat on the bench for the majority of the season playing for the Celtics when they won the championship. Pretty torture backstory. But I actually, okay, so I appreciate this. This is one of the things that I really enjoyed. The scene this is time incredible. Around. Yes. But, but also just the fact that there's, uh, they don't give us any backstory until the moment that people start talking. You, you know what I mean? Like, and I'm not just talking about uh, Woody Harrelson, but also, uh, even Jackie Moon, uh, you know, the movie starts with us seeing just some newspaper clippings of his career. Uh, but then that's it. And then we see him do his thing. And that's how we eventually, we piece it all together. Oh, so he had a hit song and then he bought the team and this is what he does. And I, I think that most movies, most comedies these days, they would just give you like flashbacks of just seeing how this happened. And that's why you end up with movies with comedies that are like two hours long. Uh, they would give you flashbacks to, uh, uh, Ed Monex's time before he joined the Tropics. And, you know, they'll flesh out a lot. Like, we, we found out about his uh, his life in uh, Flint, Michigan, you know, through other people's interactions with him, but not through exposition necessarily. And I, I thought that was really cool. Like, I think that that's why this movie moves so fast, because it never stops to, like, give you a lot of information, but rather it just lets the characters flesh it out uh, in a natural way. So when he comes in, like, you know, we just, it's his first scene. And you can, it's like you said, like, you can sense that he has a history <laughs> with mm-hmm. all these people. And uh, 
and then the dialogue kind of like fleshes it out. So that was that's pretty cool. This is one of my dad's favorite comedies, um, and one of the reasons for it is the attention to detail from the historicals perspective of the ABA NBA merger. So the Flint Tropics were not a real team. That's like a fictional part of this, and the Flint Michigan Mega Bowl never happened. But for example, the Monix was traded in from the Kentucky Colonels, and that's a real team. That was a real team in the ABA, and this actually happened in a similar fashion to where the the four best four teams were, or not the best four, but the four biggest teams, excuse me, were absorbed into it. So this is kind of you could almost call it like a historical fiction type thing, but little things like that. There are a lot of accuracies along the way, even to the point my dad said last time we watched it. Uh, in some of the scenes where they're playing, he said like some of the opposing teams, the names on the jerseys were those of real players in the ABA days. So it's uh, it's not just a cheap veneer or you know skin to put over this movie. The the actual research and work was done for it. Is this movie radar? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I was like, I know we have a sex scene, but you don't see anything and. Couldn't remember there's, the, the I guess language. that's how uh, jaded you are because th- there's a lot of bad language in this movie. Yeah, I guess not like bad enough. Uh, well, so he was, tells <laughs> Father Pat, "Suck my cock, I'll murder your family." Okay, I remember that now. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he trades to the. Well, no, Kentucky- what I was going to say is it's it's rated R, but since it's historical fiction, it could have been rated PG thirteen. <laughs> freedom, that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. Fucking Spielberg needed to put his name on this as a producer. And yeah. We would have gotten Academy Award nominated film <laughs> semi-pro. <laughs> that was it. That's the clip. Will Ferrell going like, suck my cock. <laughs> That's the best original screenplay nomination. <laughs> um, so he trades the team's washing machine away to get Ed Monix, Woody Harrelson. And I'm not kidding. Like This scene is so fucking good. His introductory scene... It's so simple. The the you know the the quickest route, the easiest road is the best one to take in this case because he comes out and he's wiping his hands with a paper towel and he does the thing where he so cockily throws the wadded paper towel at the trash can and he misses and yep. he's supposed to be the new star basketball player they're bringing in and just the way like uh, this is this like cutaway shot of Andre three thousand just looking down at the ground and looking back up just incredulous. It's, <laughs> it happens so fast, but it is a perfect sequence of comedic filmmaking. Yeah, uh, but we learned that he has a back history with a couple of the players, and you know everyone thinks he's old and doesn't know what he's going to do. And Will Ferrell, this is where we learn the team motto is ELE, everybody love everybody. And he says, you know, it's just time for us to get along. So this is where the movie turns. Correct, because yeah, I was about to say we find out what Woody Harrelson's real motivations were for, com- for coming to Flint, Michigan. Yeah, but it also it stops being a Will Ferrell vehicle exclusively. I think mm-hmm. that. Uh, and maybe this is why people turn on it because uh, up till now it's been what you would expect from a Will Ferrell movie. It's like he's he's just been there and the movie's been about him and he's been really loud and the set pieces are about how how uh, just over the top he is with his stunts, with his singing, with his just his comedy. He's just very uh, very out there. And then enter Monix and he is he almost and this is a good thing. He seems to inhabit a different reality than uh will ferrell because uh will harrelson is playing it naturalistic <laughs> you know he's not he's not over the top the way that everybody else is there especially will ferrell like he's not uh you know everybody will arnett uh 
uh, Andy Daly. Uh, uh, well, at the Andy tropics, Richter. all those all those people like earn their own universe, and you know, they're Flint's a small town, so they're like local celebrities, and so they don't have to have to deal with like the ramifications of being uh, of facing the fact in the mirror that they're failed stars, or you know, mm-hmm. not as big as they think they are. Whereas Monix has fallen completely on his face already in his career, so he's just there, and he's like. Yeah, exactly. He almost has contempt for the people he's around. Yeah, he comes in from a drama. It's like he was in a movie that was like a dramatic story of a basketball player, and somehow he he gets transported through a portal into a comedy about basketball with Will Ferrell. And it shouldn't work, but it does. And I can only attribute it to the fact that Will Ferrell and Woody Harrelson and Andrea 3000, because, you know, he he gets into the mix there, uh, they're just really good together. I mean, that's just sometimes you can't explain it. It's just there's chemistry there and they play well off each other, even though their acting styles are very different. I mean, I like what happened before. Like everything that came before was was good. But once once Monix enters the, the picture, that's when things get really good. And like I said, we learn why he came to Flint, Michigan, and that is to be closer to the love of his life. Lynn, played by Mara Tierney, she was on ER, right? Wasn't that her big thing? Is that is that where you know her from? She's a, I know her from news radio. Oh yeah, I know her from Liar Liar because I watched that ah. movie a million times when I was a little kid. Yes, I think and she, this is this is not a this, but I mean, I think she basically plays the same character <laughs> those three pieces of media. But to her credit, it's not like she has a Nick Cage, Lawrence Fishburne filmography, right? <laughs> here, she's only done like fucking maybe thirty movies, and. I remember that being the thing of she would just pop up in random shit every few years or maybe one thing a year. So I remember being mystified that this was the Mara Tierney project for 2008. It looks like she had two other (laughs) movies this year, but her being the leading lady in this. And also, it's just she's not overly glamorized. I mean, she's a very, very attractive woman. But like, you know, they don't dress her up like the one damsel in distress or two, you know, the... For lack of a better expression, the uh, Amanda Beckett, or just because they're coming off of Can't Hardly Wait, they definitely don't present her as the femme fatale, the the, the hottie hottie. And that kind of gives the scenes with her and Woody Harrelson a way more real feel in that when he comes and shows up and talks about uh, his love for her and, you know, I came here for you and her just kind of like at first kind of fuck off, you know, you know what you did type thing. She's obviously biding time, though, because she's dating this idiot Kyle, who's played by Rob Corddry, uh, with a wig, by the way. I was about you know, to ask, is that his real hair? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen this movie, li- like literally speaking, probably 10 or 12 times, and uh, I never noticed until the viewing for this, that first shot that cuts to him, like, you know, slum- slumped down in his chair with his beer on his stomach, celebrating Monix coming to Flint. Right next to him is like a four foot tall bong. I never noticed that before, and it's he just looks like such a piece of shit schlub, and you know <laughs> tells his wife that Monix is in town, and he uh, he's excited because she's you know has been romantically involved with this player that he likes. I think he's really proud of his Eskimo family tree, and <laughs> yes. <laughs> So. But see, that's that's another example of uh, pretty seamless exposition because it's never said out loud. You just figure it out because of, you know, the things that they say and the things that happen. But it's never spelled out that 
he knows that they used to date and that it and that he's cool with it. It's just that at some point the movie makes it clear that he knows <laughs> and mm. that he's cool with it. There's they never have like that conversation, which I think is fantastic. Uh, also, I think that this is another example uh, of that clashing of realities that somehow works in this movie because Rob Corddry is in the Will Ferrell universe of just over-the-top cartoonish comedy. What you were saying about Maura Tierney is exactly right. She is not over-the-top. She's not glamorized. She's just a normal person, <laughs> which works so well. Because I think when I said earlier that she plays the same character, I meant that, you know, all joking aside, her energy is kind of like the same. She's just, she always plays this type of down-to-earth, sensible character and she still manages to be pretty funny because you i think that that type of character usually uh ends up being kind of a kind of a drag you know the the voice of reason always ends up being kind of drag but here it's not like she gets a whole lot of screen time but she's really funny because she has some really like dry delivery of some funny lines every time that she cuts down woody harrelson it's pretty funny uh, mm-hmm. but again it's it's like she came with woody harrelson from that drama about the basketball player and landed <laughs> in this comedy and just like Harrison, she just landed on her feet and just took it all in stride. It, she's really, really good. From an interesting bit of screenwriting and storytelling, we move to the other side of film, which is the presentation, the cinematography, and which is in what is one of the best shot sequences in the movie. It's a poker game with Will Ferrell and the gang. Uh, you have Will Arnett, Andrew Daly, Andy Richter, and... Uh, cameo from Tim Meadows here. <laughs> this is shot, presented, and you know, back to the screenwriting, written straight out of a Tarantino movie. <laughs> yes. Like this poker game, the <laughs> the colors, the lighting, the like, the residual smoke hovering around. It looks like something Tarantino would want in one of his films, and it's just this joking conversation between the guys. And it's one, it's really good guy talk. It's stuff you could buy that would happen in a poker game. But then it just flips it on its head and becomes this absolutely ridiculous scene of comedy and also messes with like the racial dynamic of things of where Tim Meadows calls Will Arnett a jive turkey and the whole table falls silent and it becomes this huge thing to the point where Will Arnett pulls out a gun on him and says, who's the jive turkey now? Lit like fucking Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry. It's absolutely fantastic. And it just turns into a big joke and he says the gun's not loaded and they take turns around the table. Uh, jokingly shooting each other julio the first time do you, you watch this i don't know about you but i was like so tense because i was like oh fuck yep. one of them's gonna get shot <laughs> but that's that's the genius of it. it like we all know that it's loaded like even though they never say it, it the, even the first time you watch it you know it's loaded you know there's because, one bullet in there yeah, yeah yeah because maybe somebody has never watched a movie before or a comedy before <laughs> it's just like but because we know that there has to be a turn you know there's like a What's going to be the punchline of these idiots playing with a gun? It has to be that it's loaded, that there's a bullet there. So you're right. It's it's really tense because they're, like, pointing at each other. <laughs> Doesn't that? I think the first was Will Ferrell, like, puts a gun in his mouth or, like, points it at he his He points head. at his head and says, I'll see you fuckers in hell. And they all start it's, laughing. Yeah, it's it's really funny and it's really tense. It's amazing. It also does that thing. It does it all in one sequence. Introduces the gun and pays it off, like, all at once. <laughs> All in this one confined scene that never it has no like bearing on the rest of the movie either. That's the genius of it. That is where it is Tarantino esque. It's just kind of like here's this one scene, and then we're it's the the watch from Pulp Fiction. That's what this scene is. <laughs> yes, 
Yeah, it's the beginning of Inglorious Bastards. As I mentioned, when uh, Monix is first introduced to the team, Andre 3000 downtown, there there seems to be some tension, and that's just it's growing. There's clearly a feud here. We eventually learn it's born out of you know a competitive rivalry type thing, competitive jealousy. Uh, but that's kind of brewing on the back burner. We mentioned earlier Will Ferrell telling Matt Walsh, "Suck my cock, I'll murder your family," and then he gets ejected from the game. And follows up with, "What did I say?" <laughs> <laughs> just a quick series of interstitials here of Jackie Moon trying to figure out ways to fire up his team and make them stand out. So for one game, they're going to wear some eyeliner. It works at first in making them look cool, but this is where um, Twiggy gets one of his scenes to shine, the physical comedy of selling the eyeliner. Get a big brawl scene. You know, it's the kind of stuff you'd expect from this type of movie. You know, it's like what you would see in a sports montage, only that you get to enjoy it a little more because they take their time making it a, a full set piece. You know what I mean? Like this, cause a lot of this movie is just how the team comes together. And so in a, in a more epic movie, a movie with more scope, uh, which doesn't necessarily make that movie better, but you know, a movie with more scope, this is what you see just in, you know, a five minute montage or a 10 minute montage, like the story of how like the, the team came together through like different games and they brawled and they danced and all that stuff. But here, like the movie takes its time because that's the real story. You just see them coming together. And so yeah, there, there's a lot of like, tiny set pieces that are just like uh it's almost like watching a collection of short stories about the tropics and basketball <laughs> you know and they're like linked together by by the story of monix and uh jackie moon they get all amped up because of this fight they have during the commercial break they're trying to be you know good boys so he says you know no fighting during the game but when they go to commercial they get in a brawl with uh, the opposing team and they're all amped after whipping some ass when they get back to the locker room uh, and we have one of the other great Jackie Moon scootsy exchanges where Jackie Moon says, I was just out there grabbing nuts. I might have grabbed some of y'all's nuts. And Scootsy goes, That was you on my nuts? You got the softest hands in the world. And, you know, they're all happy and celebrating. And Jackie's starting to talk about, you know, the crazy ideas he has for the new games. And uh, enter Woody Harrelson Oscar clip number one. Yep. Where I think he throws a chair or something. And he's mad because he's the actual fucking basketball player. He's there to play the game. And so he gives the team a bit of a dressing down. And, you know, does anyone want to talk about the fucking game? <laughs> and this is where downtown gets one of his jabs in about, you know, you can't lecture us. You didn't do shit. You know, you rode the bench. And, oh, it's so good. Woody Harrelson takes his necklace off that has his championship ring on it. each fucking sidearms it at downtown and tells him i want you to have this as a reminder of what you will never accomplish and he hits him with he says something like win or lose at least i played the game that's what he says and walks away and kind of shames him but he's so fucking tense in this scene and again i'm starting to buy into your theory that he came in from a different movie or he came into this thinking it was a different movie or maybe in a different realm this was the genius of uh kent alterman where he just he basically Matt Damon him. He had him preparing for this without <laughs> doing no table reads or anything, just preparing for it on his own. <laughs> that's that's very likely. I mean, it, it's hard to tell because he didn't make another movie, so we can't compare results. But maybe that's the genius of Alderman that he just he did it once and then he backed away because he wanted to keep the mystery of of his filmmaking. <laughs> just a little bit he, he just teased you and for you'll forever wonder what could have been from this uh did you have this penned as one of woody harrelson's oscar scenes yeah i noticed wtf unexpected oscar clip from woody in the lockers 
there's one later that I specifically have penned as Woody's second Oscar clip. I think this one would probably be the one I played for best supporting actor, though, because you can get that quick and concise him dressing down Andre 3000. Yeah. With the, and then, you know, the least I played the game fade. <laughs> Woody Harrelson. Clapping. Woody Harrelson. Yeah. So his love for basketball is still very much alive. And, you know, he wants he wants to do good. He doesn't want to be a loser. Uh, but in a fit of passion, he goes out back and he kicks out the window of a fucking cop car. I don't think he knew it was a cop car. He just was looking for something to break. Uh, obviously goes to jail. Lynn comes in and bails him out. They go back to the dressing room and she helps drain his knee. Uh, they leave, but not before the team can come in and explain that they want Monix to coach. They, they want him to take over and start running plays, coaching the team. He says, I'm flattered, but I don't think Jackie would be thrilled about it. The next day at practice, though, this is where they, they tell Will Ferrell that we want Monix to coach. And he's looking around and he's like, this is a mutiny. <laughs> and it's built so perfectly because in your conventional, not just comedy, but, you know, your sports movies, your dramas, this is where the, the character of Ego would recognize the error of his ways and that maybe, you know, I've got us to this point and it's not enough. So maybe I need to give someone else a shot. Uh, so it builds to this crescendo where you think he's going to say something or start like, you know, getting emotional. And he goes, you motherfucking cocksuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Who gave uh, you those boots last Halloween? <laughs> um, it's cool, though, because uh, at the same time, they they managed to like move past this bit of conflict, you know, because you, you could have just assumed that the movie is going to be from now on about Jackie Moon and Monix, like Will Ferrell and and Woody Harrelson butting heads for the rest of the movie and then making up at the end. But no, the movie kind of like sets up this conflict and resolves it in a very uh, creative way, which is uh, Woody Harrelson says, okay, well, look, you're still the owner. You're still in charge of promotions. Let me take care of the the actual training, the actual playing of basketball, and you can still do what you're good at. And then everybody's happy, which is good. I mean, that's what this movie's about. This movie is, is about, it's a crowd pleaser. So I didn't really want to see Woody Harrelson and Will Ferrell fighting <laughs> for the next, you know, hour or so. So I was glad that, th- that we had that moment and then we moved on to more fun things. Well, that's the brilliance of it is you have like him getting pissed about it, but then coming around. It's awesome, too, of like how he's sulking, but they're in the middle of practicing one of their dance numbers and he's wearing that huge sun suit. So he's just like <laughs> hobbling around really depressed. I think like, my favorite part about this whole thing is that the 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 dance number that they're practicing later you see them do it and they're like very much into it <laughs> you see Andrew three oh yeah it's incredible it pays it off and it's something again it's just in a brief montage it's not something that they linger on later in the movie uh but Monix starts coaching and we learn uh, and you know the players aren't really prepared for his level of coaching and expertise and he just runs the same drill uh, he starts by you know playing without a ball this is the patch that ball up Scooty uh I. As someone who's a bit frugal, I I do just fucking love the cost cutting and penny pinching that Will Ferrell does in this movie. <laughs> and one of the scenes we're about to get to. If you came to this movie for zany Will Ferrell body comedy, this is where you are satiated. This is where your your wish is their command. As all the team players get so blown up and just fucked, they. They've uh, physically exhausted themselves to the point of throwing up, except for Will Ferrell and Woody Harrelson tells him, you know, you're going to puke just like the rest of them. He's, he's all sweaty and shit. And he's like, I can't throw up. And he explains, you know, I was a 
Mar- Marvel of Science, PBS did a documentary on me. Or he says something <laughs> like that. And Woody Harrelson punches him in the jejunum, which aggravates his stomach to the point of, you know, he starts dry heaving and chasing him around. And if this wasn't so silly and obviously disgusting because he ends up throwing up on Woody Harrelson, uh, I think it'd be way more celebrated because this is a gorgeous shot of the <laughs> it pulls to this. It's a, a wide shot of like uh-huh. from kind of like above, like with the half court focused down and it's like at sunset. And the stadium lights aren't on, so it's just like the natural light coming in. And it looks amazing. You know, the court, the reflection on the court and everything. Mm. But again, it's crazy Will Ferrell body acting. So I think that's. But you don't see the throw up, which is, I think, the key part. Because, I mean, some filmmakers, like I say, the Ferrelly brothers would have gone there. They would have shown you actual, like, yes, liquid, like falling on Will Ferrell, on Woody Harrelson and all that. But this movie just gives you the, the long shot. And that's it, and that's enough. And and I think that's why it. That's why I like it. I mean, the, rather than spend a lot of time on the really gross, uh, you know, end product, what the movie really exploits is uh, the dry heaving, which is arguably funnier because I, to me, I think it straddles that line between like, you know, is he dry heaving or or is he just sexually aroused? Because the, the way that he's moaning <laughs> when he's dry heaving, it's you can oh. read it either way. So. Yeah. I feel like I I know a lot more about Will Ferrell now than I did before I I watched Semi Pro. Like that's what he sounds like. Come on, man! I don't <laughs> need that in my life. <laughs> Next time you watch Semi Pro and he's dry heaving, just imagine that he's getting oral pleasure, <laughs> not dry heaving. Their first game with Monix as a coach, they're doing really well. They're winning by a considerable margin. I think they're playing the Nets. Yeah, they're playing the Nets, and uh, if they get 125 points, everyone there gets free corn dog. And so Jackie Moon's in a panic about, you know, we need to win, but not win by too much. And the it, <laughs> he's in the huddle, like freaking out. Andre 3000 explains to Woody Harrelson the corn dogs thing. And he's like, Monix, we don't even got corn dogs. Because I don't give a shit. We're winning the game. <laughs> Will Farrell at this point begins to try to sabotage the game for his team. And I, yeah, that's either the Nets because he goes, come on, Nets, play some defense. And he almost successfully costs, uh, not costs his team the game, but prevents them from scoring one last time. But the, the big Russian bear on the team, Vakaitis, ends up scoring. And something that not only me and my sister, but different members of my family. I remember one of the last times I saw my cousin Matt. I think this might have been the way he greeted me. Uh, Matt Walsh comes in and builds up a big head of steam with one leg in the air and then plants his leg down and points at the ground and says, Corn dogs, Jackie. Corn dogs for all these people. <laughs> you want to talk about a line just being words on a piece of paper that someone makes come to life. Matt Walsh. <laughs> <laughs> delivers this impeccably and jackie you know of course doesn't have corn dogs so he just runs out the front door and uh andrew daly on commentary is like and now jackie moon's giving us a victory lap right out the front door <laughs> uh, but this leads to the montage of the things are picking up with the team you know they're doing better they're moving up the ranks but also you know their, their fundamentals or basketball is getting better and uh monix has rekindled his love of the game we get some really great clips of him in this where he's like enjoying himself again it's uh this movie really is the story of ed monix it's about woody yep. harrelson's character you know we come into this it's you know metal gear solid 2 we come into this thinking you know you're solid snake but really it's the story of Raiden, and that's what happens here where we kick off with jackie moon but we quickly pivot to and stay with ed monix See that's that's the casting I want to see for the Metal Gear uh, movie. Will Ferrell as Snake. Uh, okay. 
could do like a short. <laughs> they would do something where he's like in a cardboard box and he can't get out of it. And, I, <laughs> and people would think it's awesome and I would be, my heart would be broken. <laughs> I can't decide if this is my favorite line in the movie, but it's definitely uh, something I quote quite often. And it is Rob Corddry when... Woody Harrelson, Ed Monix goes back to their house to talk to Lynn. He comes out and he's wearing an Ed Monix jersey. He goes, Monix, look, I'm you. <laughs> and again, there's billions of people on this earth that could say that same line and not be funny, but Rob Cordry makes it work. Uh, this is where the flame is relit. The, the sparks of passion uh, <laughs> engulf in flames as Monix and Lynn began having sex as uh, Monix was able to get fucking Rob Cordy to go run an errand for him. Uh, he comes back to get his wallet, though, and he catches them in the act. But he's he's really pleased with it. He actually starts fucking jacking off watching it. Uh, it's There's just a lot going on in this. And well, I think... Talk about playing against type, too. Like, like David Cockner, the first time you watch this movie, do you expect more tyranny to go for it? To, like, get sexual halfway through the movie because usually there's two things at play one you would expect that she wouldn't take uh monix back until the very end of the movie right that's the thing that either takes you to the third act or happens at the end you know during the climax or but then the other thing is that casting more tyranny as we were discussing she she has a very specific type that we're used to to uh, associating with her in movies and in tv and so you don't think of her as the one that's gonna hook up with uh with woody harrelson while she's still living with her boyfriend <laughs> Who just went to run an errand? So it it's shocking when you just cut to them like she's riding him on the couch. It's shocking, but it's also really funny because you know it's one of those like nervous laughter. <laughs> I guess <laughs> you laugh because you're like, oh my god, I can't believe that this is happening. And then of course, on rewatch, you're like, oh, of course this is happening. I, I knew this was coming. Uh, do you remember also, being like surprised the first time it happened? Yeah, kind of. And it's also presented like realistic sex. Like they're both still pretty much clothed and just trying to get it in where they can while they can. It's a really human character on her part, though. Yes, it's yeah. Like not a movie character at all, and it's kind of the progression of things. And to to build to it as the payoff would feel kind of like a a wasted opportunity. I think it just makes it seem real. Yeah, and also the movie has, uh, in a way, bigger fish to fry. You know, it's like the 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 main thing is about Monix's relationship with basketball, and uh, the Moratini relationship. I mean, it's also important, but. It's not the most important. I mean, even she acknowledges that. She she knows that what he's looking for is not just her, but he's looking to, like he says, uh, what does he call it? Like peak or like, you know, be the best or whatever. You know, he's looking for excellence that he hasn't achieved yet. And uh, yeah. that's really what the movie's about. So, so yeah, it's a good thing that they kind of resolve the the love subplot earlier. So it doesn't have to, we don't have to deal with it anymore. Now she's just, you know. His girlfriend, and there is she's a supporting character uh, when it comes to the games. We get some more wacky promotions from Jackie Moon as they're continuing to win games. They still need to average, I think they say like two thousand tickets sold or two thousand in attendance for each game. So he um, he's doing things like jumping a, a bunch of his uh, cheerleaders on roller skates off a huge ramp, and then brings in a wrestling bear. Uh, this is where we get there's we we failed to mention so far a lot of the just uh, quick cameos. I know we brought up Tim Meadows a little bit earlier, uh, but so far in the movie we had um, 
Jason Sudeikis as a ticket holder, a season ticket holder, excuse me. Nacho man. His, yeah, brings his own food from home. Uh, and then Kristen Wiig here, she's the the bear handler. And I think I've talked about this, about back in the days of wrestling, they would do shit like this. They'd bring in a bear. Typically, the bear would have a muzzle on it, and the idea would be just kind of like locking up with the bear. That was uh, an old play. They would get to bump a town in the old wrestling days, so it doesn't surprise me that Jackie Moon would pull that off here and it goes as you would expect. The bear mauls Will Ferrell and then gets out. And you know what's crazy, Alex? Like, what's that? What blows my mind is that just a few years later, Leonardo DiCaprio would win an Oscar for pretty much the same thing, getting mauled by a bear. The difference is that it was a drama, not a comedy. That Therefore, the Academy is just a little more, uh, I guess, interested in what happens when you know, there's a little more blood and and less laughter in that scene. But I, for my money, semi pro is better than the Revenant. Jackie Moon doesn't have much time to sell or worry about his wounds from his bear fight, though, because Dave Keckner shows back up here to inform the team that a decision has been passed down from above, and no matter what the the outcome of their big game on Friday, uh, they will not be going to the NBA. The decision stands as it was before. So uh, they worked to get where they needed to go, and unfortunately, it's just not going to be enough. And I like the idea of, you know, we talked about with the 2011 Muppets, how I kind of like the they think they're right at their goal and then they find out they weren't even close Mm -hmm. because, you know, Fozzie. Well, that honestly makes me feel better Um, with this. And it leads to the big Woody Harrelson Oscar scene here in just a moment. Yep. What it does is it strips away the promise of their future and makes them live in the now. And it makes what would appear to anyone else to now be a pointless game, the most important game that they've played to kind of show what their place in history is and how they'll be remembered. Um, but this is also, you know, uh, he's not on screen enough to get the Judy Dench best supporting actor type nomination, but Dave Keckner with a moment of real acting here where he kind of drops the, the commissioner facade and tells Will Ferrell, I'm man enough to admit when I was wrong mm-hmm. and, you know, tells him you should be proud of what you accomplished here. It's uh, it's surprising. It's not what you expect, especially when these two are, pitted against each other on screen you're like top packer what happened i think that the other thing that's pretty awesome uh, is that the entire time they've just been struggling like their goal has been to just be fourth they're not trying to be the best they just want to be like number four in the rankings and uh it, it's just so refreshing to see a movie where it's the the goal the end goal is just more modest and it honestly by the time they got to this point when they're like it's no longer about make it to the nba because we know that's not going to happen now it's just mm-hmm. about well we just have to put on a good show and still win fourth place uh i instantly thought of rocky i was like oh yeah rocky doesn't even want to win the, the first yeah. rocky you know he just wants to make it to the end <laughs> and and that was suddenly that that's the tropics they it's just about you know, they they don't want to be number one. They just want to make it to fourth place and and uh, not disappoint their fans. It's just very. It's still really funny. I mean, it, there's the dramatic moments like the Kagner moment, and then also the Woody Harrelson Oscar clip. But uh, they're interspersed with uh, Will Ferrell being just very as over the top as he's been during the movie. And again, somehow it works. You know, it makes you laugh, but it also gets you all pumped for the final game. So we get a montage here before everyone kind of comes to the realization of the importance of this. A montage of how everything kind of sucks, uh, you know, the exact opposite of what we had uh, a few scenes back. The I guess the silver lining of it is that uh, downtown gets signed to the Spurs. Uh, he gets signed to the NBA because, like we said from the beginning, he was the real star player on the team. We get Will Ferrell uh, in a dumpster 
with a very melancholic rendition of Love Me Sexy where he talks about <laughs> killing himself. And Woody Harrelson comes up and gets another great clip of acting where he talks about, you know, we still need to do this and you should call a team meeting and kind of rally the troops. So my sister and I quote this scene quite often as well. I know I've said that throughout this, but this one's definitely up there because he's in the dumpster and he's reaching over and Woody Harrelson asks, don't eat that. What is that? And Will Ferrell just <laughs> takes a bite and he goes, pancake. And uh, that's basically my sister and I, whenever we ask the other one, what are you eating? We say pancake. In that <laughs> tone. He says, I'd hate for this little piece to go to waste. He asks him, has that been there long? He goes, it's been here a while. <laughs> <laughs> so he does end up calling the, the team meeting, pulls the troops back together. And in addition to wearing an absolutely fantastic outfit with like this lavender silk ascot, Jackie begins to try to make this big rousing speech, but he just can't pull it off. And this is the scene in the movie you'd expect the coach to be able to do that. And that's why uh, Monix has to kind of take over for it because Will Ferrell just kind of keeps derailing. Uh, and he calls. <laughs> I can just see his face. He, he tells Bobby D's like, you're like a son to me, a son who's exactly the same age as I am. You're more like a son friend. And then it cuts to this shot of Andy Richter's face, and he's like, <laughs> he's like trying to get out words. And Will Ferrell tells him, "Don't talk. You'll only make it worse." <laughs> I'm sorry. I can just see Andy Richter's face, and it's fucking killing me. So anyway, Monix steps up and makes the big speech for the team. And God, it's so good. The only thing is, like we said earlier, the the first the scene with downtown in the locker room that would fit more of what we know as the Oscar clip, just because it's so concise. Mm -hmm. But this whole monologue is like fucking epic. This is like I drink your milkshake type shit here. <laughs> the closing monologue and Unforgiven. He gets up there and he says, "You know, I've realized I've never wanted anything more in my entire fucked up life than to win this game." And you know, he just rallies everybody and then gets everyone together, and he's like. This might be the last real game of basketball any of us ever play. And so, yep. you know, let's let's show them what we're made of. And they all get in the huddle and fourth place, fourth place. Yep. It's, it's when did this Kurt become Russell. like an inspirational fucking sports <laughs> yep. movie, man? It's Who Kurt gave Russell these guys permission to make me feel. <laughs> but, you know, there is like a pretty uh, key moment between Woody Harrelson and Andrew 3000 that builds up, that links everything that to set up this big speech. oh you're right because he returns his ring to him yeah and that's that's see i i was like that has to be maybe that's like the best screenplay clip <laughs> it's it's just like a you know a short moment between the two of them where yeah he returns his ring and he basically tells him why are you here why are you know you didn't need to come back you didn't need to keep playing so why are you here and and then that question is answered in that big speech uh, that he gives uh you know two scenes later so it's really really well constructed we get a press conference held by Jackie Moon where he explains that it's going to be the Flint, Michigan Mega Bowl, and it's the biggest game in the history of Flint, Michigan. Da da da. Cameo from uh, Ed Helms here, and then um, Brian Husky, the other guy. He's a comedian. I can't remember what else I know him from. I know he's wearing a wig because he's typically a bald fellow. So the night of the game comes, and it is the Flint, Michigan Mega Bowl. We have an awesome mood-setting sequence of in the. The opposing team's locker room, which ends up being the Spurs. So downtown is playing for them. Uh, kind of the temperament in there and his reluctancy to take part in this game and play against his home team. And then back in the Tropics locker room, it's just tension. You know, I, I appreciate this because it's something that would actually happen in a real sports environment like that. Because everyone's just kind of sitting around and Wolf Ferrell goes, why is it so quiet? Someone say something. <laughs> 
but it just sets the mood of tension and the mood of um, excitement and nervousness and stress. And then again, I we'll get into this a little bit more in the second half. This is a fucking great looking movie, and we get this awesome shot, this panning shot of it starts. It's like a reveal. We're behind Will Ferrell and Woody Harrelson as we go into the Tropics Arena. It's a sold out, packed, <laughs> hanging from the rafters. Uh, and this is all one long continuous shot as like the stadium continues to grow. And it's in slow motion. The lighting's great. And then the camera comes around to the front of Woody Harrelson and Will Ferrell. And they kind of look at each other and give this nod. It's the layers of this because that is a fantastic looking sequence. And then on top of it, though, you have Andrew Daly and Will Arnett's commentary that's just absolutely absurd of Will Arnett like starting to cry. And he's like, and Jackie Moon has done more for this town than any man in history. <laughs> and Andrew Daly has the incredible immediate comeback of, with the possible exception of uh, Henry Ford. It is something that I really like about this climatic match, the, like the, the, the final game. And that is that the movie, once again, going back to it being a crowd pleaser, it never pits Andrew 3000 against his whole team. You yeah. know, because that's, that's a way that they could have gone to like, amp the the conflict right if he has to play against his teammates but he never plays he's just like he's benched like he benches himself in a way because at some point they tell him go in and he's like oh no my back hurts and whatever and i was like that's that's cool like that's the most uh unusual way to go with this setup for the story which again it's just uh it's not that kind of movie you know it's a movie that wants you to feel good and and we're getting plenty of fun just watching the tropics playing against the spurs without the distraction of having andrew benjamin be part of the game and it's a good game of basketball, too. Somewhere close to halftime, Will Ferrell takes a horrendous fall and uh, is injured, uh, knocked out cold, gets carried back to his locker room. Pepperfield has the amazing line of Jackie's teammates just doing a terrible job of stabilizing his spine. Uh, <laughs> because he, he sold it. Because he sold the stretcher. Yes, yes. <laughs> he traded it away. That's right. Not sure how much this would stand. But again, at this point, the game was kind of, you know, Wild West. Anything went. So Coffee Black goes from the Spurs back to the Flint Tropics locker room and throws the Spurs jersey on the ground and ends up coming back out playing with the Flint Tropics. Uh, only in the movies. But I think mean, that's Wolf- fine. The movie has taken us to this place. And I think that by now, if you're with the movie, you're happy to just go along with the ride. And uh, this movie doesn't take place in the real world. So, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. And honestly, I, I don't know enough about basketball. So I just I remember thinking, this seems unlikely, but... Maybe that's how it goes. And even if it doesn't, I don't care. It's a Will Ferrell movie. I I can go with it. Again, the Dark Knight Rises principle. If it has you, it has you. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And at this point, I'm like, fuck yeah, let's do it. Uh, While Will Ferrell's unconscious, though, he travels briefly to heaven and we meet uh, his mother, who's played by Patti LaBelle, hilariously. Tremendous cameo. Yes. It's been built up so much because he's brought up his mom several times during the movie. Because he stole Love Me Sexy from her. Yep. She wrote it a few weeks before she died, and he went on to make it his own single. I love when he tells the team that, and he goes, and one of them, I think it's Scootsies, like, it's all right. You can just write another song. And he goes, are you crazy? I could never write a song as good as Love Me Sexy. And then one of the players just goes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, while he's there, though, his mother tells him, you know, remember what I told you. And he comes back to the present and wakes up and. She taught him a new play, and they go out on the court. In the canon of this movie, do the first ever alley-oop in the uh, and the NBA, ABA, in the history of professional basketball. I read online uh, the first traces of the alley-oop in basketball. It looks like it was reported in the 50s. 
So it, it went back quite a ways, but again, for the purposes of this movie, it works out just fine. I'd rather believe the semi-pro version. Because I imagine in the, in the 50s, there was, it was not a message from the heavens. I'll take my, my Will Ferrell history instead. The alternate history of the United States and basketball, as told by William Ferrell. It's funny, the alley-oop Wikipedia page under pop culture. In the 2008 film Semi-Pro, protagonist Jackie Moon, played by Will Ferrell, invents the alley-oop after being knocked unconscious and speaking with his deceased mother in a depiction <laughs> of heaven. <laughs> the, the, the crowd and announcers are left nearly speechless, unable to comprehend what happened. The referee is dumbfounded and feels the play should be a foul, and maybe even two fouls. Monix, played by Woody Harrelson, breaks down the mechanics of the play and convinces the referee that it is worth two points. This play allowed the fictional Flint Tropics to rally back and eventually defeat the San Antonio Spurs. So, yeah, the when they call it first, um, he doesn't know what it is, but he believes it's a foul. And Woody Harrelson, exactly that. He says, you know, there's it's not traveling and uh, it, it counts as two points. And so he's like, I'll allow it. And the opposing coach he was floating. What is this ghost ball? <laughs> uh, this is one of the most triumphant. I guess it's a montage, you know, montages that I've seen where it's like alley oop after alley oop <laughs> as the scoreboard evens out, and then suddenly they're just neck to neck. It's a, it's pretty amazing. They eventually figure out how to block it when the tropics are down by just two, and then Will Ferrell gets fouled, so it comes down to you know Will Ferrell on the foul line. Throwing free throws. And you want to talk about something building up to a perfect crescendo. The idea of it building to this moment. We've never seen Will Ferrell throw a free throw in this. <laughs> and it ends up that he just like potty shots them. It's such a perfect moment when he steps up to the line and then just starts squatting and like rolling the ball in his hand. And Woody Harrelson, what the hell are you doing, Jackie? <laughs> well, the best and, part is a downtown nose. <laughs> yeah. And he has to talk to him like it's a little kid pretending he can fly. He's like, he throws him granny style. Just let him do his thing. All right. <laughs> And the, one of the other players goes, he just turns to what he else and goes, always has. <laughs> and it's perfect, too. The shot of it's clearly him throwing it and making it. So he makes the first one. Crowd goes nuts and goes to throw the second one. And it looks like it's going to be a brick. It bounces off the, the backboard. But Monix comes in and catches it and throws it up for the two. And the Tropics win fourth place. And they win the Flint, Michigan Mega Bowl. And the celebration is on. Move on up by Curtis Mayfield plays. This harkens back to the days of Danny Kaye and some of those older movies we've watched. Fucking Valley of the Dolls, like the movie climaxes and then it's over. It's perfect. <laughs> it's like they won the game, they hug each other, and now it's time for the credits. Uh, well, there's a bear in the loose, and uh, gotta Jackie, pay that off. And Jackie Earl Haley gets some cash after the game's over. We find out that Coffee Black uh, downtown is gonna, after all, go to the NBA. Um, oh yeah, it's what it's one of those classic like oh, you can just fix it all with one line of dialogue. <laughs> oh yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> and, yeah, and the guy his... comes up like after telling him like you know if you leave you're finished, and then he comes up so proud with the jersey. He's like, I changed my mind. <laughs> classic Hollywood, classic sports movie, fictional sports movie. What else goes down here? We see Lynn and Monix reunite, and by the looks of it, with this kiss, they're they're back together for good. While uh, Kyle sees them and celebrates in the background. <laughs> Will Ferrell. Dave Keckner's like, you're an amazing promoter. You know, I can use you in the NBA. And then he gets mauled by the bear and Will Ferrell screams, everybody panic. And then we think it's the end, but then we get the payoff of the Jack Earl Haley bit where he's got this brick of cash and he's reading the note in his head and Will Ferrell's narrating. And what does he say? He's like, here's your $10,000. Dukes goes, no way. 
And he says something like, actually, it's only $2,738, but I'll give you the rest when I get the rest of my buyout check. That's it. We actually close the movie on Dukes. Which is... Yeah, because he goes, let's get tropical. <laughs> Julio, let's uh, move this on over to our version of the Mega Bowl, and that would be real talk. All right, let's do that. Uh, if you want to join us, just check the RT episode on your feed, and uh, we'll see you there.